par 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 parita. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 61. It's March 30th, 2012. We have two sponsors who would like to thank very much for making this show possible. The first one is a little studio, studioneat.com. These are the guys who make uh, Framographer, the Cosmonaut, the Glyph. I'll tell you more about them as the show goes on. We also want to make sure that we thank our second sponsor, AppsFire.com. These guys make it possible for iOS developers to get their apps discovered. It's true. We also want to say thank you very, very much to Joyent.com. These guys are making the bandwidth for this show possible. Cloud software. The only complete carrier-grade cloud software stack. You don't know what that means? You should. Go to joint.com. Check them out. Hello, John Syracuse. I didn't even hear the ringing sound this I'm time. Sorry about that. That does not bode it's well stealth for ring. Skype. Stealth ring. I didn't think I was going to hear you. I saw the dialogue appear, and then I said, oh, nothing's working again. Quick answer, but then I heard you. And is that why Skype. you were completely silent instead of... Yeah, because I was pulling up the preferences window and making sure I had the ringing set to the right audio thing. Whatever. I don't like Skype. You're all right now. Every every week it's something new that doesn't work. It's a good theme for the show. Every week it's something new. Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. All right. Are you ready? I'm already recording. That's great. (laughs) This is all part of the show. I'll edit it out. This is the show. <laughs> follow up. A little bit of follow up today. And then a collection of small topics, one or more of which may metastasize into something larger. We'll see. All right. The first one I have on my list here is we talked a little bit about the Apple TV remote and how I didn't like it. And then uh, last week that guy wrote in, sorry, I don't have the notes in front of me to see what his name was. Uh, Defending it, saying how it was uh, constructed in an interesting manner, like a solid piece of aluminum with no seams. And I pondered when reading that, yeah, where are the seams on this thing? And then, you know, like maybe it's one of those, if the seam is so small, you can't even see it. Uh, because otherwise, how would they get the stuff inside? And a whole bunch it's just of people like It's like me, a Twinkie. How do they get the stuff inside the Twinkie? Well, you got the hole in the bottom of the Twinkie. You can well, see only if cream. you look really close. So I'm assuming yeah. you looked really close at this thing. Well, some, a bunch of people sent me the URL of, of some person who disassembled the Apple remote. And basically, it's kind of like a mummification, I guess, where they pull the brains out the nose. Like everything inside <laughs> this, this remote comes through the circular battery door on the bottom. So the little motherboard inside there is round. So it fits just barely fits through that hole. And all the other parts are like shoved in there. And it really is basically a solid piece of aluminum that's been hollowed out. And all the parts are shoved in through the hole at the bottom. So that is very clever, a very clever, interesting way to make a very solidly built remote that is terrible <laughs> in all ways that a remote could be terrible. But as a piece of sculpture and a curiosity, it's very interesting. Uh, so I put that link in the show notes. Paul Sprangers was uh, the first person to write in to tell me that uh, Apple actually sold two generations of the iPod Touch, the iPod second generation and third generation at the same time for an entire year. 
I vaguely remember this uh, when when he brought it up, but I looked it up on Wikipedia as well. Do you remember like when the when the new third generation iPod Touch came out? They kept the the eight gigabyte model around, and it was the second generation. So you had to be careful, like oh, when you buy one, don't buy the eight gigabyte because you're getting the last generation thing that was like going around in nerd circles. But I bet lots of people bought the eight gigabyte one and didn't know they were getting the last generation, and still don't know and don't care. Uh, so once again, with the the iPad numbering issue, they just won't die. Somehow we all survived selling two iPod Touches, two different generations for an entire year, and I bet most people didn't even notice, including the nerds listening to this. Josh Bader was the first person to write in to tell me that GarageBand has those same giant pop-up tooltip things we talked about with uh, iPhoto for iOS, where the interface, Apple's decided the user interface is sufficiently uh, incomprehensible to first-time users that they want a, some, you know, a question mark button that they can tap and then tooltips appear all over everything saying, click this to do this thing, and this thing does that. And if you want these things, they're over here. And sweat, you know. Uh, and I, I haven't played with GarageBand, so I didn't know that. iPhoto for iOS was the first application where I found myself looking for that question mark, pressing it, and then actually reading all the tooltips. But apparently it's, it's been a thing for a while. And I think it's a pretty reasonable way to have an interface that's not gummed up with a bunch of instructions and stuff that you're only going to need the first time but also providing an obvious way for people who have no idea what they're looking at to, uh, to figure it out. Like they're not going to read documentation. You're not going to send them off to like a, a web page or where they're going to read about the thing or, or a paper manual or anything like that. This is right in the screen, in the moment, showing you exactly what they're talking about. And if you're only interested in this one button, you just look at the one yellow thing that's pointing to it. I think it's a reasonable approach, but I also think if it was possible to get all the benefits of that UI without requiring that thing, that would be good too. That may just be a matter of building up traditions and uh, what would you call them? Idioms, where we all sort of become familiar with like we know now we all know when now when we see that gear icon, the little circular gear, that it's going to be some sort of like settings or menu or something. Not that right. it's very well defined, but when that gear first came around, like whoever was the first person to use that gear, you'd be like, what the heck does a gear have to do with anything that's lurking under that menu? Uh, but eventually we come to associate certain symbols with certain things. So that may happen on iOS if all of these different UIs can converge on a few idioms besides the basic ones that Apple's already done with like on-off switches and buttons and scrollable regions and stuff. Uh, on, on the topic of the continuing mystery about RGB high, RGB low, and auto, the settings in the HDMI output uh, menu for the Apple TV, Dan Sturm, who wrote in last week, clarified, wrote in again, uh, one particular scenario that can happen if you decide to go with RGB high and RGB low and you guess wrong. Uh, we talked last week about that. That's you know sending a certain signal to the television and there's two different families of signal. One uses the entire 8-bit range from 0 to 255 to map from you know black to white or 0% red to 100% red or whatever. And the other video format, which, at which 16 is black and 235 is white and the, the extremes are just chopped off. Well, if you force the Apple TV to send whichever, we still don't know, by the way, whichever one of those things is the 0 to 255, if you force it to send that one and your television is not expecting it, uh, it could do the wrong thing. Uh, but even if it does the right thing, like say you send a 16 to 235 and your television says, oh, I'm getting 16 to 235, but really I want 0 to 255. So let me expand that out. So it takes the range and stretches it. But then it goes through another device that, that takes the range and so I need to shrink this and it shrinks it and if you have these things like expanding and shrinking taking a limited range and doing it longer or some of them like are chopping off the ends of the range as you go through more and more devices 
if any one of those devices makes a wrong decision, you're sort of accumulating errors and, and degrading your video signal quality. Not in an analog way, but in a digital way where like if any device in your chain discards everything under 16 and it shouldn't have, you've lost that data. And then if the next device in the chain gets the 16 to 235 and expands it to 0 to 255, now not only have you lost that data, but you've taken the remaining data and stretched it over a longer range and you start to get banding and stuff like that. So once again, uh, reinforcing the idea that auto is probably the correct setting for most people. And Tom Goosens wrote in to tell me why he thinks that those menu items were added. Apparently, they were added in version 4.3b2. I don't know if that's true or not, of the Apple TV uh, software. Uh, and they, he thinks it was added because some European televisions suffered from some bug that caused the colors to invert after like five minutes <laughs> of watching. And it was a suspected problem with the HDMI, HDCP, like handshaking thing that goes on there. And one of the workarounds, according to this theory, is that Apple puts in menu items that say, look, if your television like gets confused and starts guessing wrong about the input it's receiving, you can force it. You know, the, our auto negotiation thing, turn it off and just force it to always send whatever the heck RGB high and RGB low correspond to. Uh, so if you never experienced that bug, he's saying you probably don't ever need to force it to do that. But that may be the explanation of why those settings are in there to help those people for whom auto negotiation is not working for whatever reason, whether it's the fault of the Apple TV or these Sony television sets in Europe or whatever. Uh, I should have put this up in the iPad section. Uh, still, people talking about uh, products being, uh, having, having awareness of, of product generations and products being sold at the same time as their previous generation counterparts. And I was mentioning how like in the BMW product line and most luxury cars, when they develop a new platform, they don't immediately push that platform across their entire range. So the example I gave was like the convertible usually isn't on the new platform until like the very end. That's like the last one they put on. Uh, and someone who has a Twitter handle but no long name associated with it. So I'm going to say Andy Norman CX. His name is probably Andy Norman, I'm guessing. Says that in the past, Volkswagen sold a convertible Golf that was two generations behind the rest of the range. Can you imagine Apple doing that? Like that would basically be they would still be selling iPad ones right now as like the $99 iPad or something crazy like that. Although they don't really drop the prices that much on, on the, the convertibles because they're still considered a luxury car. So this thing happens in other markets. I had never heard of a car, a car being sold that was two generations behind, but apparently that happens as well. Uh, David McIntosh, it's not spelled like the computer, but spelled like the Apple, is going way back to what episode? Episode 48. And he gives the exact timestamp. Ex episode 48 at one hour, 36 minutes and two seconds, where apparently we begin discussion of what the next word that parents use to refer to video game systems will be. And went through like, you know, the, the kids are on the Atari in the 70s. And then I guess that the next one was, would be like they're playing the Nintendo uh, and then they're on the PlayStation. All the kids are always playing with the PlayStation and now they're all on the Xbox. Mm -hmm. And this is regardless of whether you actually had an Xbox, a PlayStation, a, a Nintendo or whatever. It's just the name that people used as the catch-all phrase for that infernal video game box that my kids seem to be spending all their time with. Even if it was a, a, you know, a Sega Genesis instead of calling it Nintendo. So I was, I was pondering what will the next word be? Because Xbox surprisingly supplanted PlayStation after two generations of dominance from PlayStation, even though Xbox is, isn't the dominant console of this generation. It's basically the Wii. It's sold more than both the Xbox and the PlayStation. 
So I was thinking, what what is what is it going to be the next name? Is it, are we going to go back to PlayStation? Uh, is it going to stay on Xbox for two generations? Is Wii finally going to become the prominence with a new high definition Wii? And David has a suggestion that I think is very smart and may actually be true. He says that the next name the parents will remember in game consoles is iPad. And that may be the case. Like, if you think about, you know, think about how much your son plays with his iPad now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're going to be accurate, but you're going to be telling, oh, my kid's always on the iPad. Like, you're telling people that now, right? That's the thing that we're complaining about that our kids are always on. Like, as soon as I get in the room, he's taking the iPad from me. The kids are always on that iPad. And it's true of my son, too. He plays with the iPad as well. Maybe we are the parents. And the thing that we're going to be complaining about that our kids are always on playing games could very well be the iPad. Uh, when people, what, what, when I would say that to people, I think the idea they get is like, oh, so we can have iPads hooked up to our TV and that's going to be the game console and that's not powerful enough and there's no optical drive and like they're thinking in the old school. But that's that's the way it always is. The next generation is not the same as the previous one. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that turns out. But, I, you know, this I've got a, had a show stewing in my mind about Apple and gaming, but I don't it's still nebulous at this point. But I think that's a, a topic worth discussing at some point in the future to figure out. If that becomes the case, and if Apple really does come to dominate all of gaming, not just portable gaming like they're dominating now, what does it mean to have the dominant company in gaming be seemingly so disinterested in gaming? Is that am I using the right word? Uninterested in gaming? I always get those. Well, here, but take a step back for one moment. You, as a highly technical person, you're not going to refer to your kid if your kids are playing a device that isn't an iPad. You're not going to refer to as an iPad. No, that's true. But like the reason one name comes to sort of dominate that realm is because it's like overwhelmingly popular in the culture if and usually also in reality. Like tons of people bought Nintendo Entertainment Systems, so all the kids were on the Nintendo. And yeah, lots of Sega Genesis sold and some parents did say Sega, but the, I was my contention in this whole entire theory is that there's one word that comes to be the cultural tux, touchstone for video gaming, and it's usually the console that sells the most copies. Uh, but not necessarily as in the case of the Xbox, where Xbox became the name, in my opinion, that everyone associates with. Always oh, their kids are on the Xbox, uh, even when it's not an Xbox, even when it's PlayStation, simply because it was a new name and people had done PlayStation for two generations. So even though technically savvy parents would be technically accurate, it could be that the place, this current generation of kids who are now like uh, it's still in single digit ages, the place where they will play most of their games may turn out to be on an iOS device and probably an iPad. You know, seems likely. I mean, if only certainly in volume, I would imagine just because like casual games has become a thing and the Wii already won the last console generation, which was more or less still, you know, they were the stronghold of gaming. Uh, And Nintendo for years dominated the, the, the portable game space with its Game Boy line of products. But this is, you know, the iPad just broadens the base even farther. So it could be that there's a split here and that the iPad comes to dominate gaming, but the hardcore gamers, like, retrench in their little world with the PlayStation 4 and the Wii U, U Me also, whatever the heck they call the next, <laughs> the next next generation of thing, <laughs> and the Xbox 720, the Xbox 960 or whatever. Right. But credit to David McIntosh. I don't know if he made that up himself, but I think it was a good insight that... Uh, the word I was may have been looking for that episode was iPad. Uh, so we're talking at the end of the last show about these weird limits in iOS for displaying JPEGs, like super high resolution JPEGs within web pages uh, in WebKit. Saying if you 
if you put if, this is mostly for photographers, this is uh, what's his name, Duncan Davidson mm-hmm. was uh, put up a blog post like I'm trying to show my awesome super high resolution photos that I take because he's a professional photographer, right? And I want them to show on a web page so you can show them off. And it seems when I put up images of uh, that are like too big or whatever that they start to get subsampled. And it's not showing the full resolution on my new Retina. Right, you would, you would think if you send out the highest resolution thing possible that it, it's going to display on that device at the highest possible resolution the device can d- display. But in fact, there's some kind of threshold there that where if you send it too big, then it, it does something completely unexpected and wrong. Yeah, and this was a breaking story, at least for me, at the time of the last recording. And I said I hadn't read up too much on it. Right. And so we talked about it a little bit. And people have written me in and I've done more research. And the most pertinent piece, I think, and I put it in the show notes, is a link to Apple's developer documentation that says outright JPEG images larger than two megapixels are subsampled. That is decoded to a reduced size. JPEG subsampling allows the user to view images from the latest digital cameras. That's a nice way to spin it. So this is built right into, you know, it's a documented feature that basically the, the device may not have the resources to display your humongous 55 megabyte, you know, what is the thing? Uh, the, the Canon 5D Mark III images or whatever. Uh, because we just don't have the capacity to do that. So anything that's beyond our threshold, and I'm assuming these thresholds were set based on memory or decoding uh, CPU power required to decode them or whatever, they're going to subsample it and show a smaller version. And so the spin on is that this allows the user to view images from the latest digital, digital camera. The implication being that if we didn't do this, the machine would not simply not be capable of displaying images of this resolution because it would be a RAM issue or a CPU issue for decoding or whatever. Uh, autodidact spelled in a very strange way on Twitter tells me that he thinks it might be because uh, and by the way this limitation doesn't apply to to PNGs only applies to JPEGs he thinks it might be because PNG compression has gotten faster on the the newer iPad hardware but JPEG compression has not advanced at the same rate so it could be that they have some sort of CPU or GPU feature that helps them decode JPEGs like four times faster than they used to be able to you know, on this new hardware, but the JPEG decompression has not been keeping pace with that. And if they, you know, if they just let you use these giant JPEGs, even if it wasn't a RAM issue, that the decoding time would start becoming an issue. Uh, So that's an interesting theory as well. But anyway, the mystery of whether this is a bug or a feature, it is apparently a feature and presumably one that will be loosened up as either as Apple figures out a better way to do it or as the devices get more, more, you know, RAM and CPU power or whatever. And related to that, Mihai, I'm gonna try this. Par, 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 parita. I don't know. I'm sorry, I did. That bad. I think I got Mihai right. I looked that one up before the show. Uh, writes in to point me to a post from uh, someone at Apple to the Triple W Style mailing list, which is the the W3.org mailing list for people discussing CSS. Basically, all the people who are members of the I don't know what you call it consortium of companies that are members of this committee that makes the cascading style sheets specifications in, on an ongoing basis. Uh, Apple loves to do this and has done it in the past. They'll have their representative who is on this list and participating in this process write the list with the proposal and say, here's what we're thinking. We're thinking of doing something like this. What do you guys think of that to try to open the discussion? And usually what happens is the discussion on the mailing list happens and people debate the pros and cons, but then Apple just goes off and implements it. Sometimes the Apple people will email the list after they've already implemented it and say, Here's what we're thinking. And by the way, we already added it to WebKit. So what do you guys think? Which probably annoys the people like, isn't this supposed to be collaborative and we have a consensus or whatever? But as we've talked about in past shows, Apple really does not want to wait for any sort of consensus to form 
it thinks it has an idea, it will implement it. If the standards body comes up with an equivalent or better standard, then the Apple will adopt that as well. But in the meantime, Apple just wants to get stuff done. And so that is relevant to the press discussion because what they were proposing here is a new CSS thing called image set, image hyphen set, that lets you specify in a you know CSS rule instead of just saying, you know, like background image, whatever, or just giving it a URL to an image, you can give, uh, you can set the background image to something that is a set of image. So you can say, here is the 1x version of this image, and here's the 2x, and here's the 3x, or whatever. And you're trying to express the idea that these are all the same images, but they're all in different resolutions. This is, uh, as opposed to using a media query or something where you say, okay, well, if the device has a device pixel ratio of two, use this style sheet, or if it has a device pixel ratio of three, use this rule. So you can say, okay, well, on the device pixel ratio of two devices, show the 2x version of this image uh, versus the other one. So media queries apply to the entire page. And in the post to the mailing list, which is linked in the show notes, there's a little fact at the bottom that say, why do it this way? Why not use a media query? And the answer is that media queries are a claim about the state of the user agent, whereas they're trying to make a claim about the relationship between image assets themselves. Uh, so they're not trying to say anything about, oh, this is a device with a device pixel ratio of two. Therefore, all these new things apply. This is saying that here is an associated set of images in various resolutions. And what that allows is for the user agent to, for example, and this is an example to give right in the document, use a lower res version of that asset if the page loads in a view where they're way zoomed out, right? So even though you're on a Retina iPad, if you're seeing a big, a big web page that's zoomed all the way out, don't load the 2x version of that image until they zoom in to save bandwidth, for example. And if you did a media query, that wouldn't work because the media query says, oh, device pixel ratio is 2, therefore I'm going to load the 2x versions of all these images and it will take a year and a day and eat up your bandwidth cap and all that other stuff. Uh, and this also keeps the rules about the uh, images together. So you don't have like a media query, you know, device pixel ratio 2 and then a bunch of CSS. And then somewhere else in the document, the same, the same rules repeated, uh, but with a different media query prefix. This keeps the related images together on a single line. Here's an image set. There's a low-res version, the high-res version, or whatever. So I, I like this proposal. I think it's a good idea. And I, what I also like to, uh, and that Mihai also sent me the link to as well, I put it in the show notes, is the change set in track for the WebKit nightly builds where all this change is added to WebKit. So I don't, let me look at the date on that. And I think that the mailing list post was from February of this year. And the check-in for, to WebKit was from March 21st. So maybe they proposed it and then implemented it and now it landed there. So if you get the WebKit nightlies, I suspect by now you can try out this rule and it seems like a really good idea to me and it seems like it solves a lot of the problems that web developers are having with how to correctly serve images to iPad 3s. So I would expect it to be adopted out of pragmatism and if the CSS working group wants something better, they should get moving fast because people are just going to end up implementing this just to get their web pages to look nice in the meantime. You get cranky about Apple doing its own thing with web stuff or you're, you're trying to get out of the web games. I mean, this doesn't no, affect I'm you. I'm trying to get out of it. I, I, I just think it, it, you know, there's a, the reason why I feel people get upset about this kind of thing is because the companies, especially the larger ones, Microsoft in particular, uh, who've done, and I guess you could look at Adobe and Flash, but companies that come out and do their own thing historically have a history of not executing it very well and or doing it in such a way that it's closed. And that 
right, rightly bothers a lot of people. And I think that's the concern. It was just, you know, when I, when I redid this uh, five by five site, I had this, uh, this scrolling div that contained the, uh, the, the artwork for the most recent shows up at the top. I still have it. Uh, but I was getting contacted by people and they were saying, well, it's sluggish on an iOS device. And I, I saw that. And indeed, it was a little bit sluggish. It shouldn't be. It was just a scrolling div. But it turns out there's this special, funny little WebKit declaration just for iOS devices that you knew about, that you told me about, that fixed it and made it beautiful and works beautifully. And it's that kind of thing. Of course, that's never going to be supported universally. Mozilla isn't going to add that. Chrome isn't going to add that declaration. Because, obviously, for one reason... There is no Mozilla or Chrome for an iOS device. So they don't need to think about that kind of thing, really. They don't care. But if Apple builds this culture uh, of, of people who are developing and learning all of these special things, why isn't that the same as what people had to do for years for Internet Explorer? That's the concern, is that the more that they go off and do their own thing, the more they make special cases, special rules, different things like that. And I know this is kind of veering in a different direction where you were going. And that's the concern. Do, do I worry about that? Uh, to answer your question, and no. And it's not because I'm moving away from the web design stuff. I still do a lot of it. Uh, but it, it, it's that I feel that building, building something that targets a, a certain device or platform, if you want to build something custom, you know you're doing it. If, if you want to look up that WebKit declaration to make the iOS browsing experience better, you're doing this in a conscious way. And it's not like doing it for a browser that a certain percentage of people are going to have on a platform that's shared by everybody. You're building something that's custom and unique just for a device, for a specific device that you may be targeting. And if you've chosen to do that and said, this is something extra that I'm going to put in that rides on top of what is already a, a decent experience, then I think it's okay. And as long as that's kind of the direction that Apple heads in or that, that the company's head in in particular saying, hey, you want to make this better for iOS users? Do this. Oh, then I'm all right with it. Anything that kind of infringes and goes to the next step and says this is the way it should be across the board, uh, that makes me a little uh, little leery. Yeah, I think web developers are usually of two minds about this. There's the one level that, that you were just talking about it on. It's like, look, you've got a site. There's something that makes it perform better. Like it's not you didn't spend time agonizing over whether you should add that rule. Once once you saw that it worked, yeah, of course you're gonna add. You're not gonna go. Oh well, yeah, that fixes my problem for my customers, but I really don't want to do that because it could hurt the future of the blah blah blah. No, you add it. Like because that's that's the one level of operating. The second level of operating is people who do this for a living and constantly have to do these pragmatic things that make their websites better for customers start to think at a level higher and say, oh, that's well, well and good, but what am I doing by what what kind of environment is this creating? And if I extrapolate from this, does it make things worse down the road? And that's kind of the Zelman level of ah, thinking right. about the web as a, a larger thing. At the same exact time, again, you know, Zeldman himself is was using all these crazy tricks to get stuff to work for customers, but at the same time saying, I would really not like to use, I would like not <laughs> to have to use these tricks at all, and it would be good to make something standard. Yeah. Apple, for the most part, with its stuff like this, I I feel pretty good about what it does. Mostly because for now, I truly believe that it's not its intention to uh, embrace, extend, and extinguish. Because it's so much, uh, the much more logical explanation, as far as I'm concerned, is that they simply are, want to move faster than the W3C process moves. You know, it, even 
even setting aside whether they think their proposal is better than what the W3 comes up with as a group or whatever, they, like, they're, they want to ship an iPad 3. They want people to be able to make web pages and apps that look great on it and stuff. And so they need something, they need something at ASAP. They, can, they simply can't wait for the process. And I think a lot of people think it's rude to like, oh, well, why don't you, you know, do your proposal and let's talk about it. Don't just implement it. Don't land the commit into the WebKit thing two months later and say, well, you guys took too long. Like Apple's got products to sell and customers to satisfy. And I think most of its proposals are reasonable and aren't crazy and don't involve like, oh, well, this extension, you know, will only work if you have a specific GPU installed and only Apple has access to that GPU, like some sort of weird lock-in type thing. I think they just want stuff that works. Uh, and this is a case where there's no like minus WebKit on the front of it. So clearly they're, they're, it's a little bit more bold than they usually are with like the WebKit touch whatever scroll. I can never remember these names, but the, the little hack they use add, added there. When you, when you add this to your thing, it's not clear that it's a WebKit only thing. Or maybe they, I should look at the check-in. I didn't look at the diffs to see. Maybe they added it with a minus WebKit to begin with, even though the proposal added it without. But I think Apple is pretty good about backfilling. And, it, and you know, when there's a standardized version, a way to do this, they will backfill and say we'll support that eventually as well. I think the W3 people are unsatisfied with the speed at which that happens. Like WebKit will continue to support the WebKit border radius, whatever. It's like, well, come on, WebKit. When are you going to support our official border radius? When You know, there's always that lag where, it's the second something is standardized. Everyone wants to see all the browsers that had uh, vendor-specific extensions to immediately roll out support for the standardized version and deprecate the old one. But that happens more slowly than people would like. But let's just say, you know, I, I feel okay with it, but I'm keeping my eye on them. <laughs> you know, keep, my, keep my eye on you, <laughs> Apple. And I think everybody is. Everyone is so wary of that, and they're held to a very high standard. So I think, I think it's wise to keep your eye on extensions like that. Hey, let's do our let, let's do our first sponsor. Good idea. Are you ready for that? Yeah. All right. It's uh, one I love to tell you about. Studioneat.com. Have you got your Cosmonaut yet? No, I wish I had it because I'm using lesser, reportedly lesser styluses. Or, or I don't really like the by lesser styluses. Do you do you mean your finger? My finger. No, we do have two styluses <laughs> in the house. I don't even know the brands of them. I just know I'm not satisfied with both of them, and everybody raves about the Cosmonaut. Got to so. get this. Okay, so the these guys, the StudioNeat.com guys, it's two guys, the founders of the company. They're the ones that came up with the glyph. Do you remember the glyph? This is the little uh, stand slash tripod mount for the iPhone four and four S. And this thing sparked and created what what uh, I have dubbed the uh, the indie hardware revolution. That is come up with a cool idea for some cool piece of hardware, get it started on uh, Kickstarter, and, and make it and make millions of people happy. They invented that. Well, they didn't invent it, but they were the first to do it. So in a way, they did invent it. And they also came out with this Cosmonaut. Uh, same concept. This is the coolest stylus. It's like, it's like an adult crayon for an iPad. I guess you could use it on an iPhone too. Love this thing. This thing is, is awesome. Uh, this is why I'm doing so much better than you, uh, by the way, John, in, in Draw Something. And uh, they, they, they have a new product out. It's called Framographer. And this lets you do stop motion picture. Stop motion picture with your iPhone. When you were a kid, didn't you always want to like get to some Legos together or some clay and like make a stop motion movie? And you realized that you would need several thousand dollars of equipment and uh, experience as a photographer to even be... You don't need that anymore. You go get your iPhone... Uh, you, you you get Framographer on it, and now you're you're making stop motion picture movies, and they they show you how easy this is. It's great. You go to studioneat.com, and uh, you enter five by five coupon code five by five at the checkout. Twenty percent off. Twenty percent off. 
So go check them out. Studioneat.com. Love them. They should be they should become a longtime sponsor. I'm just gonna say that. And no, shame, had, shame on them if they don't. I had no idea that the cosmonaut was from the company that made the glyph, or you know, I thought it was a product from an established big company. I had no idea they were Kickstarter. And this this framographer thing, I I'm gonna buy this after the show for my son because it looks awesome. It and is yes, I did, so awesome. I did I did try to do that many times <laughs> as a child and failed miserably because what was it? 16 millimeter film? What, yeah. what was the, the film format used when we were kids? Does not lend itself. 35? To 16? No, it was, oh, 16 went in the little the little cameras that we could have, right? No, no, this video video thing instead of still cameras. Is it 8 millimeter, 16 millimeter? The really skinny film that would fit. It's like the equivalent of a home camcorder, except right. you needed that gigantic light that would like burn people's eyeballs out you know <laughs> oh, that because thing it, it we, was so light insensitive <laughs> eight, eight millimeter people are saying in the chat room i don't know how many millimeters eight millimeter. were. yeah my my parents are actually converting all that old eight millimeter film to uh, to dvds it doesn't look good when you convert it but mm. it's, it's nice it's nice to try to preserve digitally all our old movies of us when we were kids yeah so go get that i'm sure i'm sure that the um i'm sure that the the they would send you oh and here's the coolest thing about the i don't know if i should spoil it i won't in fact i won't I won't spoil it. I was going to describe the cosmonaut packaging, but I won't. Wait, see for yourself. When you get this thing, you're going to love it. The way that it's packaged up, I'm not going to ruin it for you because it's a very cool packaging. These guys are great. Shame on them for not, if they don't sponsor again. All right. Let's get back to the show. I'm actually going to get to draw something eventually. That's on my list of stuff to talk about. Oh, today? Yes, today. Oh, great. So the, the user agent stuff and all the image set, that was the last of the follow-up. And now we're into my three small topics that I have today. Start with a late-breaking topic, which I seem to have a lot of lately. Like, as I'm getting ready to record, stories fly through on Twitter or whatever that pique my interest. And I said, that's worth talking about. So this also happened earlier this morning. Did you see these stories moving around? A Gruber linked to it, and uh, Horace had uh, a story on it about Rim... Focusing on the enterprise. Yes, uh, this is, and this is something that uh, <laughs> well, the way that John Gruber links it, his, his title is "Rim to Give Up." That is his title, and he links to Horace's article. Uh, and um, yeah, it's it's interesting. What what are, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, so this is a quote that uh, Horace has at the top of his article, and it says, uh, "This is." Quoting from Rim's new CEO, now that they've got rid of the co-CEOs and they got this new guy. <laughs> how, how, how long did we give that? Did, we, did it last longer <laughs> yeah. than we thought it would last? <laughs> I don't I mean, yeah. Not a good idea. So Thorsten Hines is his name, I think. It says, we plan to refocus... Wait, Thur- on the- Thurston Howell, I think you're thinking of. Oh, very similar, yes. <laughs> we plan to refocus on the enterprise business and capitalize on our leading position in this segment. We believe that BlackBerry cannot succeed if we try to be everybody's darling and all things to all people. Therefore, we plan to build on our strength. I like the fact that he used strength sing- singular there. He doesn't, he doesn't want to oversell it. Like, <laughs> they've got more than one strength. Right. Either that or, or Horace missed the S when he copied and pasted no, it. There is a period of build on it. All right. So what Horace says in, in, the, in his article is that at one point he says, you know, focus is a good idea. It's great and all, but you only succeed if you focus on the right thing. And Horace says that enterprise is not the right thing. All right. He says enterprise support is a feature, not a product. He's channeling his uh, Steve Jobs uh, dismissal of Dropbox there. <laughs> and the thing I wanted to focus on about this, uh, where, where Gruber says, you know, Rim gives up. Th- that's apt, I think. As I, I've talked about the enterprise before. 
with scarecrows around it. About what what distinguishes that from the other markets? What makes what makes enterprise different? What is enterprise? What does that mean? And the distinction I drew in whatever show this was, I couldn't find it. You know, people should transcribe all of our shows so I can do a text search. Uh, that would be nice. Everyone do that. Yeah, that's a tough job. But uh, anyway, I, when I talked about it last time, I think the distinction I was making is that enterprise means the people who use your products are not the people who buy your products. And that that separation of uh, incentives is poison because if you don't have to make the people who use your products happy, you just, you know, you end up making your products optimized for the wrong things. And BlackBerry had, had both going for a while when it was like the king of people love their Blackberries, the crackberry thing. And, IT departments love them too because they gave IT departments all the power they need to, you know, control people's devices and provision them. And like they were, they were serving their their enterprise customers well, but the people who use them also like them as well because Rim wasn't just a company that sold to the enterprise; it sold to customers. It would, you know, you'd go into the, your Verizon store or whatever, and you'd come up with a BlackBerry, and also work would give you one, right? So this is like kind of the last bastion of Rim's success mostly because as customers abandon blackberries because they want iphones or android phones or whatever because they're just not keeping up it departments don't abandon it as quickly because IT departments have different requirements that it departments don't care as much that newer phones are are nicer to use they like the idea that they have all their you know infrastructure and uh, command and control set up for blackberries and changing anything in it takes a long time and they don't like change so the last bastion of RIM's strength is in the enterprise because it's harder for them to change. There's a customer just like when their contract comes up, they don't get a phone. But uh, enterprise, big companies don't overnight say, well, BlackBerry stinks now. Let's not use them next time. Because then you got to get everybody new phones. you got to figure out all new infrastructure and figure out who your vendor is going to be and do all this other stuff. So they stick with it. Uh, I think it's the wrong place to go because if you focus solely on satisfying the enterprise, you're basically saying, we don't care how much people like our products. We're not even going to try to make a product that people like to use. We just want to make a product that the enterprise likes to use. We're going to give up selling, you know, forget it. We're never going to convince individual people that this is that our products are good. Our only shot is to convince IT departments that they should continue selling with us. And it is absolutely the, the worst thing to focus on because you are shooting your own products in the head. You're saying that it, we're not even going to put it as a goal in our efforts to make people like our products. We just care that the IT department likes our products. Uh, and Horace points out in his thing, and who else brought this out? Daniel Jowkett talked about it on Twitter. That flies in the face of the trend, which I think I also talked about in the last show, that the ID, IP department's power is waning and that the new trend is to empower the individual employees of companies more to say, you pick what kind of device that you want and we will support it for you versus we dictate what everybody uses in the company. And the example I gave last time was like uh, companies dictating what kind of cell phone you have to have because they support it, but they tend not to dictate what kind of pen you can use because pens don't require support. And it's like, well, if you want a pen, just tell us you want big rollerball, blah, blah, blah model and give it to the office manager person and he'll order it from the stable catalog and you'll have it. We don't really care about that. But if you say, Hey, I'd like an iPhone, like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. You can't have this strange device on our network. And you've heard all these things before at companies. That trend is sliding because you know, the the important top level executives say, well, I want an iPhone and I'm an important person. So I'm getting one and you it department, you work for me. So support it. And that trend away from centralized control and towards individual, uh, choice about computing hardware all the way down to the stuff they have in their desk and everything all these things that used to be exclusively the realm of the it department 
Uh, that's that's not helping. That trend is not helping RIM because even if RIM 100% satisfies the enterprise, it makes those guys who work in those jobs completely happy, even though all their users hate their phones and wish they could use iPhones. Uh, that the power of that group, the power of their customer that they're aiming for, the enterprise ID people, their power is waning too. So this is not a good scenario. Like I said several shows ago, talking about who else could challenge. Uh, I don't remember what I was talking about. I was saying. Who are who are the mobile space challenger? You've got like Android, uh, and you've got Palm, but they're dead. And then I said Rim, and then I said dead soon. Well, they continue along that path to death. And also, I think someone said that uh, was it the CEO or someone important in Rim when asked, uh, "Is the company for sale?" He said, "Like we wouldn't, you know, we're open to that." Which is basically, yes, someone please buy us, please buy us now, save us from ourselves, buy us and buy us for our patents and fire all our employees. But please give me a golden parachute. You know, so things not look good for Rim, and I think this plan is terrible, and no one should ever focus on the enterprise for anything. You know, you're right, and less and less these days is there an enterprise. More than ever, there are startups, there are freelancers, there are companies. That, I mean, look at the Studio Nika. Two guys. That's that's what it takes. Their IT department is like them, and more and more with the smaller and smaller companies, it's. Today it's a great it is a great environment to create a small company and do a startup, uh, and I don't even want to use the term startup. Scratch that. It's it's a great time to start a company, and work for yourself, and have that kind of independence more so than it's ever it ever has been. The infrastructure that we have, just as a person using the internet today, it's amazing compared to what we had five years ago. And I saying that you're going to focus on IT. Uh, on enterprise rather and those it departments those it groups it's just it it's crazy like there are sure there are still big companies but those companies really from inside out want to make the changes that you're describing they want to say yeah our employees get to pick what kind of device they want or because our employees are going to do what they want anyway outside of government contracting i've mentioned this before i have a friend who until very very recently had to use a blackberry because it was it was the only one we've i think we've talked about this on other shows they make versions of them that don't have cameras on them that the, where they can go in and he's got you know some kind of secret clear literally some kind of secret clearance that he he cannot have a phone on him that has a camera in it he can't have a phone on him that doesn't support a certain kind of uh, encryption because of the work that he was doing. So he had to use a different kind of device. Well, other than that, I mean, who, who wants to use, you know, who's for, I know, I actually know somebody who has a, as a, as a client, has RIM as a client, had to switch to that phone. What do you think about that? Yeah. I see the people, I see people still to this day in companies carrying their BlackBerry for work and carrying their iPhone for personal. Yeah. Like even, even at my actual current job, when you come into meetings, someone puts down their laptop and they put two phones on top of it. They put the BlackBerry <laughs> on top of it and they put their iPhone on top of it. And one is their personal phone. And, and to my company's credit, they realize this is an issue and, and don't want this to happen. They don't want you to have your work self and your personal self and carrying them all around. But, but like it's, you know, and we're, it's difficult for companies to change. The government is like the last bastion of that because talk about difficult to change. And like in so many cases, as you point out, there are actual legitimate reasons like, the military is not particularly hasty about qualifying new devices to be, uh, you know, allowed to be used or whatever. So, but all, all these things where there's, and uh, you're talking about starting up new companies and stuff like that. Any place where there's like a barrier to entry, you end up with 
I don't know, I don't know the economic terms. You end up with imperfect competition where things that actually kind of stink end up being the quote unquote winner in the market because of these barriers. And as the barriers fall, things are judged more on the merits of what job they're supposed to do. You know, like it, do people actually like the BlackBerry? Or are we just picking it because they're the winners in the enterprise space and it's hard to start a company or whatever. And now as we get all these, you know, the barrier to creating your own company, even for anything, this is the Kickstarter, the great thing about Kickstarter, I think has been, and the interesting thing to me is that suddenly now uh, there was a way for company, for projects that had big capital investment and that actually affected the physical world. Like I'm going to make the glyph. I'm going to make a thing that attaches, you know, it's a metal thing. I'm not making software. I'm not doing something that I can do in my basement and just upload bits over the wires coming from my house. And that's how I do my business. I, now I have to have like people fabricate things for me in a certain volume for the physical world. I'm going to make like, I'm going to sell you a thing. And that was much harder to do without initial funding. Whereas the guy in his part in his spare time in his basement can start working on his, his cool iOS app. And Kickstarter funds those type of things as well. But once you start making physical things, it's like, well, geez, that's the realm of the old school business. Like now you need, you know, you can't just make two or three of those widgets. You need a capital investment, like a real business. You need a business loan or something or whatever. And the internet says, well, we've got a way to do that too. How about we just show people the thing and if they think it's cool, they pledge money for it. Uh, So all of this makes the things that used to determine our choices for devices or whatever... Uh, less relevant. It's also also kind of a disintermediation thing because where is the bank in this in the Kickstarter thing? Where mm-hmm. is the banker going? I don't know. I don't know about the look of you. I don't know if I can trust you with ten thousand dollars. <laughs> you're gonna make a what for a what? You're gonna you're gonna make a pen, but it doesn't write. And you you point it you put it on a metal screen where you don't. But the pen has to act like a finger. That doesn't sound you know loan denied. And you know you're just out of college and you've never had a job and you don't own a house and you have no credit. Uh, that's t- that type of stuff. It becomes less relevant, and so you get better better competition for things. Versus, you know, instead of saying all the pens that are made are only pens by Belkin or other big companies, not that they make bad pens or anything like, but like the only people who can play in that game are the people who are established businesses who have gone through all the hoops, who have filled out all the paperwork, who have leases on office space, who have employees, and all. You know, you wouldn't get the guy. Hey, I've got a good idea for a pen. Uh, well, that's great. You have an idea. Maybe you can go work for Belkin and convince them to do it. No, I'm going to try to do it myself, and I'm going to find a way to get money for it. So. I don't know how we got to this from RIM, but it's, a, it's all kind of of a piece, I think. And I think you're right that <laughs> focusing on the enterprise makes bad products. And the enterprise, the, the power of enterprise IT is waning. And the number of things you could even call an enterprise, see, it seems at least, I don't know if we could say this definitively, but in our world, in the circles we travel in, it seems like the more exciting, interesting things are coming from companies that didn't exist or people just getting the wherewithal to do something on their own and figuring out how to do it and us collaboratively figuring out how to do it, you know? It really does. It it seems like the support infrastructure is finally where it needs to be. And that was the big change is, is I remember when we all experienced this amazing joy and wonderment that a couple people or even one person could create this website or web application and you always would hear these stories and you'd see the the older generation just shaking their oh man one one guy did that or five people did that and now they're millionaires and they sold to the that's normal this um this omg pop draw something which i don't know if this is perhaps a segue into your next topic uh but those guys sold to uh it was zynga right for like 200 million bucks and it's like you know a couple a few people handful of people that's not a that's the number is a big deal but the idea that a few people can get together with a few computers, build something, 
and get acquired and become instant uh, millionaires. That's a brand new idea, but we're so used to it by now. You know, the old the old way to do it was you get a startup, you get tons and tons of investment money, and you try to go IPO. That was the big thing a number of years ago. And before that, it was this this old school way of you know look at look at the way that Steve Jobs and Woz started out. They had ideas. Well, they had to go work for a company to get those ideas done. They couldn't. The idea that they were going to go and build a computer out of their garage, it was like you'll never. That'll never take off. I mean. Everybody knows that. Everybody listening to this show knows that story. That they they had to work at Hewlett Packard. They had to work at Atari. They had to work at these other places to get stuff done. And that back then, they would take their idea to their boss. Hey, we've got an idea to build a computer. Do you, do you think you you would take this idea? Can I? May I please work on this? No, no, that's never. That's not going to be anything. Move along. I guess I guess we have to try this ourselves. We have no choice. Now it's like, screw the company. We're not giving them any of our ideas. They get eight hours of my day, and that's too much. <laughs> you know? And they're out there trying to start their own thing in their spare time. And of course, that's how you would do it. And now you can fabricate some device and some physical thing. And that's the next generation. You know, we've had applications, web applications. Then we had iOS applications. Even the, the companies that don't want to open their infrastructure and allow developers, like Xbox, you can write a game for the Xbox. I guarantee you that the Xbox doesn't like that. They don't want, they, they are allowing you to do it, but they would prefer to control everything because that's the mindset. Maybe they're coming around. Maybe they're seeing through doing this that this is a great way to do it. Though when they started out, you could tell it was with great hesitation. Now it's out there. Great. You build your cool stuff with the Xbox. But the next generation is being able to build and fabricate those physical things. Kickstarter makes that possible. It's a couple guys show up. We have a neat idea. Here's the prototype. Do you like it? If you like it, hey, donate. We get enough donations. Well, we're going to do this thing. And then they do it. And it's, it's, um, it's amazing. It's absolutely the next generation of things. Is it that instead of just building something that's really cool and neat that you can see on your computer screen or on your iOS device, Build something that's real, that's physical, that people can use. Pretty soon, everybody will have, what do they call those? Uh, not dye sublimation, but those, those printers that... They, 3D printers? Yeah, 3D. Everyone will have one of those. You'll be able to create your own uh, gizmo right there, your own house. Yep. The thing about iOS apps, and the reason that Gold Rush made sense, is that like you in your basement, in your spare time or whatever, you write... You don't have to be in your basement, I guess. You write, you know, you write Instapaper to help you on your commute to work, but you still have your regular job. And if it takes off, you're like, hey, I can switch over. This is a viable business now. Now I don't need the other job. Now this is my job, right? And what did you what did you put at risk there? Did you quit your job first? No. Did you take out a big bank loan? No. Did you have hire employees and get venture capital? It was like you can transition into it without the big capital investment. Physical things, as I said, are, are more difficult to do that with. Uh, but the the uh, the strange thing that's happening here. Is that now you can do? How oh my? How should I phrase this? I I I want to get back to your idea of the getting acquired versus doing doing an IPO mm-hmm. because I think that that is an anti pattern that exists and that some people get upset about that you do this cool thing and you don't have to do a big initial investment and then you get then you get acquired and you cash out. But then at the end of that, what did you really what did you really do? You succeeded in making yourself rich, right? Like this is this gets into the Zynga thing because everyone hates Zynga for various reasons. You succeeded in making yourself rich, 
but then what did you what did you really accomplish? How did you change the world? Versus something like Facebook, which is the other great example of Mark Zuckerberg making this thing and steadfastly refusing to sell out. Right. He didn't sell whatever who in Yahoo or, or Microsoft wanted like a billion dollars. You know, so many offers. He said, no, no, I'm not going to sell. Because he could have he could have cashed out it many times and been extremely rich and, and been just fine. Uh, but he kept it to himself because he was trying to model himself after like Steve Jobs, or Steve Wozniak, Bill Gates, where you don't sell because for them it wasn't, you know, no one was rushing to buy Apple as soon as they got a successful Apple II. Whereas in this day and age, if you were in your garage and made the Apple II, so the equivalent of successful, people would be clamoring to buy you. Google would want to buy you. Microsoft would want everyone want to buy you. But it didn't happen back then. So they made their big companies. They became Apple. They became Microsoft. Uh, and that's the other model where you, you, you want to make a, have a thing of lasting value and be in control of it and you don't want to cash out. Uh, so I think the, the fact that you can get off the ground and be and make a company that people want to acquire is good. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't people like, oh, you cashed out. They're like, that's perfectly valid. You know, who am I to complain about it? That's what they want to do. And that's, you know, they made the thing. They want to sell it bully for them. Isn't that, you know, reward for hard work? But some people think that's not a good idea. Someone posted a link to Will Shipley's success and farming versus mining thing from 2011. Right. I should put that in the show notes. That's a good example of this. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about is, is the idea that for iOS apps and even physical products, for iOS apps, you just write it, you send it to Apple, they take care of a lot of details, again, removing barriers to entry. Uh, and for physical products, uh, Kickstarter really helps there with the funding, but then you can, you know, contract out to someone to to manufacture these things for you and work out all the details there. I'm not saying that's easy, but it's a, it's a thing. I think the final barrier to entry, and I think it's a really, really important one that exists for everybody, is say your goal is not to make a, an iOS app or an, and not to make a small physical product or an iPad case or something like that. What you want to do is make something that's closer to Facebook, like a internet scale application for everybody to use. Like you want to be the next Twitter or the next Facebook. And that's, you know, so that that's your goal. So that path is not as clear because the barriers to entry, like there's no, there's no commoditized way for you to do that. There's EC2 and stuff like that, but there's still the feeling that if you want to be the next Google, you're not going to become the next Google building on top of EC2, right? Because it's not easy for, with any amount of money, even with venture capital, even with just the, you know, even with unlimited funds, how do I make an internet scale application? And I think that's still more mysterious art than, for example, making an iOS app or doing physical manufacturing, something like that. And that's a barrier to entry to the incumbents. How do you, I become the next Google? How do I become the next Facebook? Even if you get everything else right, it's like, well, then how are you going to make a, a quote-unquote web scale application? Can you, can you, do you know how to write an application that 500 million people can use at once? Nobody knows how to do that, basically. Uh, everybody who sort of like, you know, they stumble through it. Facebook just figures out, like, you know, they've got a problem solve it, got a problem solve it. In the end, they end up with this weird, crazy, customized conglomeration of stuff it's not really repeatable by anyone else. And if you ask the people at Facebook, like, I'm, I want to make the next Facebook. Should I model my infrastructure exactly on yours? They'd be like, well, ours looks like this for reasons X, Y, and Z. And if we had to do it all over again starting today, we wouldn't do it this way, but blah, blah, blah. And the commoditized approach of EC2 and stuff like that, it exists. But I don't think it's not to the point like where, where like iOS app development is where you can say, I'm going to make an iOS app and Apple's going to sell it for me. And I'm not going to lose sleep over how they sell it. Like they know how to take credit card money. They know how to do all this stuff. You know, it works. 
if you're making a web scale gigantic internet application, you better be losing sleep over, geez, how do we deal with success? How do we end up, how do we devoid what Twitter had where you had those, you know, months or years where nothing worked right and it was horrible. Is it impossible to avoid that? Does everyone have to go through that? That is, I think, a big, big barrier to entry, even as all the other types of products that I talked about have the barriers to entry lowering. And I guess it's lowering in web scale applications too, but it still bothers me that seemingly even with infinite money, witness Apple, it's not it, like there's no nobody knows how to make a service that's reliable all the time, as reliable as you think it should be. Look, just look at Siri. Apple has basically unlimited money uh, and probably tons of smart people. And yet half the time Siri is down and people are cranky about it. Well, how, how could they not get that right? If they can't do it, what chance do two guys in a room have to get something off the ground and and not get killed because of these infrastructure problems and not have to like figure out on their own for the umpteenth time, just like Facebook had to figure out, just like eBay had to figure out, just like Apple is figuring out, just like Microsoft figures out. Every, does everyone have to do it on their own and figure out what do we have to do to get our application to scale? It seems like we should be converging towards some idea of how to build a web scale application, but we're very, very far from that. Uh, and that, that I think is the remaining barrier to entry of like, I want to be the next Facebook. What's preventing me from doing it? Is it my ideas? Is it my skill? No, it's the, it's the reality that if you actually succeeded, you'd be doomed because you have no idea to make an application at that scale. And basically nobody does. That kind of depresses me. That was quite a tangent. That was. Well, let's do our uh, second and, uh, and last sponsor for today. If, if you'll allow it. Go for it. Uh, it. You know, you're talking about, it actually ties in somewhat with this topic, uh, conveniently. You come out with an iOS app. You want to get discovered. You want to get this thing out there. You want to get this out in front of the world. So how are you going to do it? You come out with a really cool game, right? And uh, and then you, uh, you you it gets submitted. They approve it. And you say, oh, I want this thing to come out. And you pick the day. And that same day, that very same day, Angry Bird Space comes out. And within moments, that thing is uh, the number one paid app in the entire store. It's all anybody's ever talking about. And your app comes and goes. Nobody ever notices it. And uh, you, you don't get to start your own company. You don't get to say no to Zynga when they offer it to you because nobody ever finds your game. And, and that's the end of the story, right? That happens to people all the time. Is there anything you can do? Maybe there is. This is where Apps Fire comes into the picture because finding things as a consumer, finding things in the App Store, no matter whether it's iTunes, App Store, or, or whether it's uh, this Google uh, Play or the app, it, it's very difficult. Apps Fire changes all that. They have these really awesome guides. They're designed to help people find the best apps, games, everything. It will help you find them. And if you're a developer, if you're creating this, you want a service like this. You want to say, how is my app going to get found? Tons and millions of people use it. They, they, they just got this 148 Apps Award. They were just nominated to the top 50 uh, must-have uh, apps for Android. There are people making Android apps, John. You should be telling that to Marco, not me. All right, I'll tell him. In any case, the, their, their philosophy, their belief is that every good app deserves to be discovered. And, uh, and, and they'll help you get your app promoted. And, and this is, this is, it's a great service. I don't know what more to say about it. You get, if you're making an app and you're not looking at this, uh, shame on you. So here's the deal. 10% off. Use a coupon code 5 by 5 10% off. And the first developer uh, that contacts them, they have a spe- set up a special email address, 5 by 5 at appsfire.com. 
they will get an in, their entire ad campaign will be free. So you go to appsfire.com slash five by five. And uh, when you're there, you sign up 10% off with the coupon code five by five. Thanks very much to AppsFire uh, for supporting the show. And before I forget, I also want to mention about the, the show notes. Uh, John takes hours of, of his uh, time. He should be working. He is instead finding links, uh, submitting them to our CMS, or painstakingly organizing them. And you can find those at 5by5.tv slash hypercritical, and, and in this case, slash 61. It's episode 61. You can see all of those links that he has collected there. And uh, they're there in the show notes, and people are often email me. I get at least an email every day or two about this. Is there any way that I can see these show notes without having to go to the website? Uh, and the answer is yes, you can just subscribe to the uh, to the feed with your favorite RSS reader and all of the links and things will show up uh, right there. So uh, we can say thanks very much to the uh, the, the burly men of, uh, of helpspot.com who create the best help desk software in the business for making that possible. I'd also tell the people who are using RSS for that to be careful if you're using an RSS reader that aggressively caches stuff like Google Reader because occasionally I'll add one last show notes link like right after the show <laughs> finish airs or whatever. And if you're using Google Reader, you're never going to see that link because Google Reader caches seemingly forever and cannot be convinced not to cache it anymore yeah. in the RSS article. It's like I had, I think I've said this before, but I had like some Tumblr spam that I deleted. It's still, if you go to the Google Reader feed for my Tumblr blog, you still see that spam there, even though it's been gone for, you know, months. No way to flush that out, huh? No, no way to do it. So anyway, that's a complaint about Google Reader. But do be careful. And I would encourage people to actually visit the website. Oh, and looking at the chat room here, uh, some people apparently are not sure what the sponsor code is for Studio Neat. Do you, can you repeat that again? Yes, it is very hard to remember uh, for people. So I apologize. It is the number five, B, Y, and the number five. Yeah, they said they tried that. And here's something else you're missing in, in this in the chat room. This I won't go good, in there. And too much uh, negativity. I'm taking. Yes, a, I know. I, I've a heard, vacation I've from it. it. That's why. That's why I'm I'm there for you. Thank I'm you. your proxy. So here, holy cow says, and I don't know what this is related to, but I thought it was worth repeating. Oh man, if I had a dollar for every time I tried to impress a girl by buying a domain name, that's that's the five by five chat room in a nutshell. <laughs> that's great. So they're saying the coupon code doesn't work. I will, uh, I'll get on that. I, it has been working. Maybe they've been inundated and they've, they've, that 20% has come back to bite them. And now they, they owe people money. I don't know. I Hodge did Podge that. says it worked for him. He uh, used five by five, just ordered a Cosmonaut. It worked. So really, yeah. So it may be an unrelated problem. I will also say that, uh, somebody, uh, who had last week before these guys, uh, started sponsoring, Last week, and th- th- apparently this person is a big 5x5 five five, uh, fan, a big listener. Uh, they uh, they went out, and after hearing, was it you and I who were talking about I was talking to somebody on one of the shows about the Cosmonaut, and they went out and bought one. And then hours later, they heard, oh, they're sponsoring. They wrote them an email. They said, listen, I just bought this thing. Is there any- anything you can do for me? And they said, oh, we'll, we'll give you 20% off. They gave them 20% off. Very nice. I think there was a, you know, I don't know if everybody can make that happen, but they did. While, it we're, right. on the, while we're on the chat room, Jeff Sebring asked me if I'm still ignoring the Ubuntu review. Are you referring to the Joe Perillo thing where he tries out Ubuntu in that video? Ah, right. I, I actually started watching that and I'm only like a quarter through it. It's just not holding my interest, obviously. I'm not really that interested. In that. And the re- I think the reason it's not holding my interest is that regardless of how well or how badly... Uh, this attempt to use uh, 
this particular Linux distribution goes, I know what, what lies beneath in Linux, and I know <laughs> how how thin the shell is between. Like I don't know, you could argue that the shell is just as thin in Mac OS X, but like at a certain point, you fall off a cliff on Linux. There is the GUI they provide for you, which is certainly not as support not supported as well as the Mac OS X GUI, and then beneath that is Linux, which I we all know is not viable for regular people to deal with at all in any way, shape, or form. So I'm I'm just. I don't know. I'll, I'll watch it anyway because you can learn stuff about user interaction by watching it. I will eventually watch the, the entire thing, but nothing in it is going to convince me that therefore Linux is the next uh, mass market consumer platform. Uh, even though Android is Linux, and you could say, like, Android is an example of, like, you, if you give someone an Android phone, you're not afraid that at some point they're gonna, going to have to, like, you know, install an RPM or, like, edit, edit a file in Etsy or something. Like, it's just not going to happen, even though it's quote-unquote Linux. But Ubuntu and Linux on the desktop has still not quite reached that threshold, I think, of, well, it's Linux, but you don't have to know it's Linux, right? Uh, so maybe it will get there someday, and, you know, that's the perennial joke. Uh, the year of Linux on the desktop, <laughs> when did that start? 90, <laughs> 98? Right. And, uh, like, for whatever reasons, it hasn't happened. We all agree it hasn't happened. And, you know, I, if it did happen, I would be open to it. Like, for example, Android. No one is saying, oh, uh, you can't use Android because it's Linux and regular people can't use Linux. It's not even a factor. No one even brings that up. Like, it's it's clear to everybody when you have successfully hidden the world of Unix that is actually lying beneath a particular thing. I think Mac OS X has clearly done that. Android has clearly done that. There are probably other examples. Was, was WebOS Linux-based, too? I just assume everything is these days. Uh, yes, WebOS was, a, I believe, a Linux-based. Uh, I don't know, yeah. the, you know what, what exactly what flavor of it, but it was, it was their own thing. But yeah, I, I believe it was. And all of the apps in that were JavaScript. Yeah. But it, like Ubuntu and the, the desktop Linux distributions are still kind of in that old world of like, no, this is real Linux. Right. And what that means to me is Linux will show through eventually. And then it'll be, it'll be bad scene. All right. I actually have two more small things here, but I don't know if I want to fit them both in. I have Will Shipley's post about the Mac app store. And then I have draw something. Should I do both of them? One of them, your choice. Tell me them and them again, you were going so quickly. I always do. Uh, Will Shipley's oh. post about the Mac App Store. About well, I did upgrades. like that. I did like that post. And then draw something. We got to do draw something, though. All right, so I can do both or just one. So your choice based on time constraints. Well, how about this? We'll start with draw something and we'll see right. how how deep we go into the that rabbit hole. Okay. So draw something for people who don't know is a game that uh, came out on the App Store like a couple weeks ago, maybe a month. I don't know. And it became very popular. It's basically like Pictionary, where you draw a picture, you get a word, and you draw a picture, and then you send that picture to somebody else, and they have to guess what word you were drawing that picture in response to. Uh, and then, you know, so it's, it's a asynchronous multiplayer, kind of like Words with Friends or the other Scrabble type things, where you don't have to be online at the same time to play with each other. Uh, it seems like such a natural fit for iOS devices that it amazes me that no one made this game before. It really does. This is one of those things that the first time you play, you're like, how... I've seen this before. And then you realize, no, no, you haven't. Or, or, or maybe you have. Maybe the games like this have existed. on this. How many apps are there? There's like 500,000 apps. For all we know, there could be, you know, but just for whatever reason, whatever combination of like awareness and serendipity and marketing and critical mass and whatever, uh, this became popular. And it just does that viral thing where it spreads or you get it and someone else gets it. So eventually, like, we're all playing Draw Something. And at this point, I'm playing it. You're playing it. Everybody is uh, playing with it. I'm still playing Words with Friends, by the way. 
So, you know, some of these trends, you know, I, I like asynchronous multiplayer because I like the idea of just like if I want to have two seconds of fun and thought and then it goes away and I don't have to be online at the same time as somebody. Uh, but I think everybody, every tech nerd who played draw something and maybe also every artist, but I don't know, immediately thinks like, bar, this game is popular and it's got critical mass and everyone is playing it. But within five minutes of using it, I can think of a hundred things that they should do differently in this application that would make it a better application. And that's that's the one of the other sort of non-merit-based factors that lead to success that makes people angry. And that one is like popularity and critical critical mass. Like we all hate Facebook or a lot of people hate Facebook, but Facebook is where all the people are. Same thing with eBay. So like when something that, that has a network effect gets critical mass, it becomes frustrating to people who say like, well, if I was to judge this thing on its quality as a game, as compared to say there was an alternative that was better. I don't even know if there is, but I can see that this actually isn't that great, but it's got this other advantage that we think is quote unquote unfair that, well, everybody's on it. Therefore it's a barrier to entry to competitors that we think is not based on the quality of the product, but it's based on other factors based on its popularity or whatever. I definitely get that feeling about this. Now for, I will, one caveat I will say is that it's possible to explain away a lot of these complaints or try to explain them away by saying, Yes, that would make the application easier to use or better or uh, it would make drawing more efficient or whatever. But the goal of this application is not to be a drawing app. It's not Adobe Illustrator. It's not, uh, you know, it's not anything. It's supposed to just be fun. So this, you know, this thing that makes drawing more difficult, actually, that's part of the challenge. Like it's it, because it's a game. And so we think that's part of what makes it fun is, you know, oh, you know, that's that that's not us being not being able to make good drawing tools that's part of the challenge of the game so i mostly don't buy that but i have to put that out there and say that you know it, the goal of this thing is not to let people draw very well the goal is to make a fun game but i would say that even judge based on the fun factor it falls down because especially for tech nerds and and people who use lots of apps and stuff interface inefficiency is not fun Right. Like gameplay where they put barriers in your path and have, you know, people shoot fireballs at Mario and put pits in his path and everything like, well, this this Mario level would be much easier. You just got rid of all these pits, these bottomless chasms. If you just get rid of them, I could just run in a straight line. But that clearly wouldn't be fun. But when you keep ratcheting it back to like, oh, now this is just a, a really bad drawing app. And I don't find that fun because I've used lots of drawing apps and I know how you could make this better. Uh, so other aspects are harder to justify. I haven't talked about the particular ones. So these are just categories. Other, other aspects are harder to justify in terms of fun gameplay type thing. And those are those are things that everyone has knows. Repeat, repeated words is the biggest one. The word list from which it chooses seems to be very limited. So in the 19th time, you have to draw poop. Or you don't have to draw poop. It's just easy to draw. As soon as you start drawing it, the other guy's like, oh, this guy's clearly drawn poop. I've seen poop like nine times before. <laughs> I've drawn the same word to the same person multiple times. I drew a password for somebody twice, like within a day and a half. Right? And so, oh, well, why don't you just not pick that word if you've repeated it? It, it? On both ends, it's annoying because you do always want to pick like the three coin word or whatever, the most difficult one. Uh, and when you're guessing, you don't want to guess it based on the fact that, oh, I've already had this word, so I know what it probably is. Even before they start drawing, you just look at the set of letters and you're like, oh, I know what that is, a skateboard or whatever. Uh, it's, that's not a fun factor. 
that doesn't add to the fun of the game. It decreases the fun of the game. So that is terrible. And everyone complains about repeated words. Bugs. Bugs obviously do not contribute to the fun factor. If you load up the thing and you don't get to see what the person guessing your drawing, which is part of like taking your turn, you get to see them trying to guess what your word is. Yeah, that's sometimes it, just, sometimes it just doesn't show it. And you're like, where the hell was that? Oh, sorry, bug. You know, any kind of bugs like this. And there are bugs. And it's not as buggy as words with friends was in, in its worst old days, but it's still got bugs. When you do see someone like when you guess the word successfully, it fast forwards to the end of their drawing. Like, say you guess it halfway through their drawing. You guess the word successfully. It says, hey, you're correct. And then it shows. And by the way, this guy drew for 10 more minutes. And here's the final version of the picture. And then you get one, two, and then it disappears. And you can never see it again. So my example is I always want to show like my wife, hey, look at this. Here's the, this person's final drawing of whatever. Isn't it cool or isn't it ridiculous or whatever? By the time I can turn my iPod over to face her, it's already gone. Mm. And there's no way to go back and look at that. That seems super dumb. It's not easy to switch accounts on a single device. If you have like one big iPad and someone's using it, you're like, okay, well, I want to play my games. Oh, well, you know, it's not, there should be like a big switcher on top. Like the idea that this is partially due to the fault of Apple, if not recognizing the shared nature of iOS devices. But I don't know if you have this thing, but like on an iOS device, like, okay, these are the apps for the kids and these are mom's apps and these are dad's apps. And God forbid, like you both want to use Instapaper on the iPad if you have one shared iPad, because then it's like, who's logged into Instapaper and you're constantly logging out, signing in with a new thing and reloading everything. It's just a waste of time, uh, especially for games like this. If you have a single iPad where everyone wants to draw on the iPad because it's big, make an easy way to say, okay, now mom's going to do her game. Now dad's going to do his without going back through the settings and entering stuff. Make a switcher in there. Uh, and the big one, the big one this kind of falls into the, oh, it's making a more difficult category, but I think it, it that's not a valid justification. Is the lack of undo. The lack of undo is terrible. Because the, the, the drawing tools are not particularly easy to use. And if you do make a mistake, it, with no undo, you have to like painstakingly erase that bad line by yeah. trying to, to match it with, with some other line. No undo seems crazy to me. Like It doesn't seem like a fringe feature. It seems like it should have been in there on day one. We're not even talking about multiple levels of undo, just one undo. And the one that really annoys me is this, this particular iOS bug that haunts me is that when my battery hits around 20%, it puts up the, oh, 20% battery remaining. And that dialogue will come up like 19 times in the next minute. For some reason, I'll dismiss it. I'll do stuff and it'll come up again. It'll come up again. Each time that comes up, if I'm in the middle of drawing when that comes up, I know that when I tap the OK button, it draw something is going to draw a line from wherever my finger was when the dialogue came up <laughs> in a straight line to where I tapped the OK button. Terrible. And with no undo, I now have to erase that line. Mm-hmm. And whatever was underneath it. Yes, and then redraw that and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And so the drawing tools themselves, like the, the sizes of brushes they give you, it's like, you know, tiny. And then the next one up is way too big. Obviously, there's no pressure sensitivity, but that's not their fault, really. Although, uh, if they really want to go whole hog, having uh, support for styluses and support pressure with Bluetooth or something would be really neat. Um, now, to OMG Pop's credit, they did a blog post that tried to address all these concerns. And they say, here are the things they have planned for upcoming versions. They want to be able to share drawings on Twitter and Facebook. That's the idea of uh, being able to see drawings again, put drawings into your photo library. Uh, undo for your last brushstroke is prominently featured on the list of, of features that they're going to add. More words. That's a bullet point. So that's good. Better performance and a bunch of fixes for bugs and stuff. So it's frustrating to me that these features don't exist, but you can, I kind of have some sympathy of like, so you make this drawing game, you want to get the version one out. You just want to get the simplest thing that possibly works. And then all of a sudden it becomes wildly popular. And then everyone's yelling at you for not having all the features that you planned for 1.1. And you thought 10 people would use 1.0. 
and then 20 people use 1.1 and then like by the 1.5 then you would be successful but somehow you were successful with 1.0 and now everyone's yelling about your application so i do have some sympathy there but i, I feel like undo in particular i wouldn't ship the 1.0 without that because mm-hmm. it, it it just makes the game frustrating instead of hard now the, the final aspect of this and this is where zynga comes in is the in-app purchase of crap of buying more colors, buying what else can you buy with the bombs that make the game easier because you can eliminate when you're guessing the person's word, you don't have a keyboard in front of you, you have a set of letters that are jumbled and you won't use all the letters that are there, but the letters that make up the word you're supposed to guess are in that mix. And by hitting the bomb button, it deletes a bunch of the letters. Does it delete all of them except for the ones you need? I don't even know. I ran out of bombs long ago. Uh, but you can buy these things either with with in-game currency. And every time you correctly guess something, you get one, two, or three of these little in-game coins. But you can also buy these in-game coins with actual real live money through an in-app purchase. And then you spend these coins, like tokens in an arcade, to buy more colors and stuff like that. And in-app purchases... There's, a, there's another love-hate relationship with these things. People do feel nickel and dimed by in-app purchases. But there are two separate things here. The feeling of being nickel and dimed like you individually, me individually, you individually, any individual person may say, I don't like applications where they have in-app purchases for stuff like that because I feel like, oh, didn't I just buy the game? Now I got to buy this. Now I got to buy that. Now I got to buy this extra thing. I just want to pay and have the game, right? That's one thing. The second thing is the actions of people in aggregate. And they are opposed to each other. Because I think if you talk to everybody, don't you feel nickel and dime when you have to do a bunch of in-app purchases? Everybody says yes. But then if you look at all people, not just one person, and say, what does in-app purchases do for the income of developers? It's like a money fountain. It makes tons and tons of money. So people all say they hate it, but people keep doing it. And everyone's like, well, that's not me. I would never do that. I'm not the person who does this in-app purchases, right? It's it's the other people. But if you're a company, it's very it's very hard not to do something that you know that will produce lots of money because the decisions that people make and the things they say about how they feel are too, are so opposed in this particular case. And in-app purchases work on like basic pricing psychology, like the sunk cost fallacy of like, well, I already bought the game. Now spending one more dollar for the fancy colors, uh, I can justify that because like, well, if I don't, it's like a waste that I even bothered buying the game, right? Instead of just walking away from it, they're going to put more money into it. And then, of course, there's a desire to win. Once you get into that, like, heated match and, and words with friends. I hear words with friends is some way for you to buy an advantage too. Uh, and that's why a couple of people I know stop playing it. Uh, when, you know, when you want to get that, you want to win, you're like, I need more colors. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta have more colors because I, I keep losing to my friend in this because I can't, I don't have orange or something. I don't have green. Uh, the competitiveness gets going like, oh, it's a dollar fine. And it's so frictionless and so easy to do in that purchase that you'll find yourself buying it. Uh, there's another app. Uh, I was actually going to do a whole section on this, but I didn't want to be unfair to them, but I'll mention now anyway. Uh, that paper application, did you see that? Yeah, brand new paper app, yep. Uh, Gruber linked to it, and it's, it's been a great, passed it's around. It's beautiful, beautiful. I describe it as uh, an electronic version of those notebooks that hipsters carry around. Like the really precious, beautiful, moleskin, you know, it's like I'm in... Uh, <laughs> this is... If the video shows like if you are kind of like an, an arty person who spends your day walking the city looking for interesting scenes and then you sit down and you sketch the scene with your with your creativity, you are a beautiful and unique snowflake and all that stuff. Uh, 
that's the that's the image they're going for, and I don't want to seem like I'm making fun of hipsters because uh-huh. I think that's perfectly valid. <laughs> but the application itself, which looks gorgeous, by the way, like these these notebooks look awesome and they're customizable and, you know, all, all the drawing tools look great. It looks like a, a, a beautiful website, beautiful application, everything out. It looks awesome. But when you get it, if you want to paint, you have to spend an initial whatever it is, $1.99. And if you want to write, you have to spend it like it's it's kind of like OpenDoc, the vision of OpenDoc, where you buy kind of a container and then the tools you want to use within that container are additional items. Only now it's with in-app purchases. One way to looking at it is it's saying, well, we could have sold you a $30 drawing app, but we'll send you a, sell you a $1 drawing app and you just buy the tools that you need, right? But the other way to look at it is, like, I, I was making jokes when it came out, like, so you can buy paint and then you can buy write. I'm like, well, well, of course, when you start the app the first time, you have to buy view. Otherwise, the screen is blank the entire time. So I've, I've purchased view and now I can see the paper, okay? <laughs> now I'm going to purchase draw and now I can mark the paper. <laughs> I'm going to purchase write and now I can make words. But if you try to draw letters, it detects them and tells you you can, you know. Uh, it sounds like I'm down on the application. I think whoever developed this application did a great job. It looks awesome. I didn't buy it myself, so I haven't actually tried it. But from all the videos and everything, it looks like a great job doing an application. And also, I think the people who buy this will, for the most part, be very satisfied with it because their target audience it hits all their buttons. You, you want a beautifully designed, elegant application that's fun to use and makes you feel creative and matches something you already like in the physical world. If you like those little notebooks that cost a bazillion dollars, if you have a notebook fetish, which I shouldn't make fun of because we all have our own fetishes of things that we like to, to buy for way too much money, having an electronic version of that is cool too, right? So I think this will hit its target audience, but it bothers me that like, that they had to go this route. That it was I don't know if there was a debate of saying, should we sell the $10 application or should we sell the cheap one and then have the in-app purchases? And if you're a business, I, it, I would even have trouble with saying, Here's why you shouldn't do in-app purchases because oh they're saying it's a free download. It's even better. Like, should we charge money for this or should we have it be a free download and do everything through in-app purchases? And you know, on the one hand, you're going to say, well, it make it'll make customers feel better, like the Instapaper philosophy of like you just want to buy one thing. Like he didn't want to do in-app purchases for fonts because it just it just doesn't feel right to him, right? And that is a very principled stand because. Truth be told, I think you can make a lot more money by basically annoying people by doing the in-app purchases. Practice has shown that the freemium model, especially for anything that has that is remotely game-like, the freemium model of give it away for free or cheap as possible and then charge for add-ons, that makes you tons of money. Way like all these these online multi, you know, multi-user uh MMORPG games, massively multiplayer online yeah. role-playing games and stuff like that. They used to be, oh, give us 50 bucks and you can play World of Warcraft, and then there's a monthly fee on top of that. And then, you know, the, the model in the Far East was always, uh, or it was the game is very free or very cheap, and then you buy stuff in-game. And Western developers are like, oh, you can't do that. We're getting 60 bucks for everybody who buys this game. We're going to, we think we're going to give them this game for, you know, for zero dollars and hope they're going to buy horse armor. That's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's stupid. Those guys are suckers. Uh, but eventually the Western developers, usually for the games that were becoming not popular, like, oh, geez, not a lot of people are playing, you know, Lord of the Rings Online or Dungeons and Dragons Online. We're like, we don't have that critical mass and World of Warcraft crushed us again. And we spent all these millions of dollars making this game. Uh, you know, we got to do something. All right, I guess we'll go free to play. And so, they say, okay, you can download this for free and play for free, but then we'll sell you stuff in game. And suddenly their revenues quadruple. And then everyone, you know, notices like, wait, what's that? What's that going on? A Western developer did that and it worked. And so now everybody has figured out that this this works like gangbusters. It makes you tons of money. It's just a shame that most of the people who consider themselves, you know, hardcore gamers or connoisseurs of games 
don't like it. And I bet if you even ask the people who are being nickeled and dimed by this type of thing, like, do you feel, do you feel like you're, this is a nice thing to do? They would say no, but they'll say it just as they're buying, like, you know, the, the special bomb bird that blows up the whole thing or buying the bombs to buying the new colors or buying the bombs to kill things and words with friends. And so I think all game developers and all developers in general are trying to strike a balance, but geez, it's hard to walk away from that money. So if you know you can quadruple your revenue and the other guy at the table is saying, yeah, but won't we feel kind of sleazy? And the other guy says quadruple revenue. Who's going to win that <laughs> argument? You know, it's not. It, it, luckily, Marco does not have a board of directors that he has to talk to. He's just got to make a decision for himself. In-app purchase for fonts or everybody gets the fonts. Everybody gets the fonts. Executive decision. No vote needs to be taken. You know, even though he does have that one employee, but it is his wife. So I think he can persuade her possibly. Yeah, you know, this is before childbirth. Maybe after he will lose some, uh, <laughs> some credibility. But... It, this this is a challenge for everybody and draw something does okay with this not great uh i personally will never do an in-app purchase for something like this and if there were things i could not do in the game without spending more money i wouldn't do it i would be much happier to spend five dollars more for the game than to have to buy colors and have to buy bombs and have to buy all that stuff now you can get bombs without paying a cent simply by playing the game but the pricing structure is such and this is another trick of these games the pricing structure is such that you will have to play a long, long time to get enough money to do this. So you get like three coins every time you get the hardest possible word, right? Uh, and the like a new a new set of bombs costs like 400 coins. So you're going to have to play a hell of a lot of this game or you just plunk down a few bucks and get like 500 coins to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. So that balance of like, well, you never really have to pay. Everything you can do in this game, you can do for free if you spend 8,000 hours playing it. And that's that's something that everyone agrees is not good. So... I really don't like this trend towards in-app purchases, but I don't know what to do about it because I totally see the point that, look, if this is what makes you more money, you know, what people say and what people do are two different things and there's no way to reconcile that. Like, how can you be a successful company and make these awesome applications if if this is the way you make money? The only sort of silver lining, I think, is that the sort of the Android model where all the apps are free and they all have ads in them and the iOS model of most of the time people would rather just pay two bucks for the app and not have the ads in it. That shows that it is possible for, for like the light side to win out, even though it seems like on the on the Android side, no one wants to buy anything, and you get much more distribution. If they, even Angry Birds was free on Android, is it still free on Android? Angry Birds, the most popular app in the entire universe, was free on Android with ads because they didn't think they could get Android people to pay whatever few bucks for it. Whereas on on iOS, they always had the paid version. Uh, so iOS is the white knight in this realm of like, I don't know, some, somehow holding the line on making people pay for a product that they enjoy instead of giving them for free and then trying to suck more money out of them once they're in the application. And specifically, and draw something, I would like to apologize to you for not getting Aladdin correctly. Obviously, I do not know how to spell the word Aladdin. I thought, I was, there, were two, I thought there were two L's. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Well, you saw afterwards, I'm sure that it was... But that was a good one, wasn't it? I was Your drawing was perfectly fine. I immediately got that it was supposed to be Aladdin. I typed, well, first you typed lamp. You typed lamp first. Well, yeah, yeah, which was fair because you hadn't. You were just watching, but there were clearly more letters than lamp. I know. So I thought it was going to be like lamp something, lamp rub. I don't know. But anyway, when I went for Aladdin and I was one letter short and I thought there were two L's and there was not another L, I just moved on to other letters and I could not figure it out. It's almost comical to me how almost immediately it seems like it's without... It's an automatic thing that as as soon as the drawing begins, you start tapping the little shuffle the letters 
Some people do it and some people don't. Occasionally I do, but sometimes I just want to give it a chance. People draw at different speeds too. Like when you have these slow drawers and you know they're going to take a year and a day before they draw the part that you're supposed to be guessing. You just like wait, like they're drawing the grass, they're drawing the sky, drawing the clouds. Sometimes they're just trolling you like in Marco's troll. Did you see that tweet that he did? Uh, No. The drawing he did for me, the word was starfish and he drew an entire beach scene in incredible detail with like... The water and the person laying on the towel under the umbrella and the sidewalk and the banana smoothie stand from Arrested Development. I'm assuming that's what that was. Uh, and then at the very end, drew a little star next to the seashore and put an arrow towards it. And that was like 10 minutes into this drawing. So oh. that was an intentional troll. But other people do that unintentionally. I'm going to start doing that now. I didn't know that was a, that was a thing. It is a thing. Sometimes I do it unintentionally, too. All right. So, that's all I have on draw something. I think we I think we get to wrap it. I think because your other the Will Shipley topic. Yeah, that's probably a that's topic. a bigger topic. It's a great topic. Oh, I have one more. Well, we can we can do an after dark. I have one more thing to add in here. We, we can do an after dark if you want to. Whatever you'd prefer. I think I want to try to squeeze it in here. All right, let's squeeze uh, it in. This is a, a thing for for Marco, and it's kind of. An uncomfortable conversation, uncomfortable conversation that we have to have with Marco, or that someone has to have with Marco, and it could go one of two ways: either he already knows everything I'm about to say, in which case the uncomfortable conversation is, "Geez, you knew all this already, and still your your uh, position has not changed," or he didn't know this, and it's going to make him sad, and you're going to be uncomfortable that you're making him sad. Uh, and it revolves around his dream car, the BMW M5, that mm. he's discussed many times, right? I don't know if he knows this or not, but I've known this for months and months. And I think everybody knows this, but he's never brought it up to my knowledge. I listened to all his shows and maybe I, I missed it or forgot it, but he has not brought this up. And it makes me think either he doesn't know it or is in denial about it. This BMW M5, the four-door sedan, high-performance, expensive version of the mid-range BMW sedan. Uh, BMW is the ultimate driving machine. As you all know, that's their, their slogan. It's all about the driving experience the thrill and joy of driving uh, and the joy of driving involves all the things that kind of gear heads like, you know, going fast, good handling, not a lot of body motion, the, the, the wind in your hair, if it's a convertible, the roar of the engine, the, the feel of the steering, everything involved with the driving experience. Well, the BMW M5 is moving a little bit more towards the luxury side mm-hmm. where luxury cars don't want the outside to be getting in so much so when you're cruising on the highway you want a smooth cruising experience you don't want to hear a lot of road noise or things slapping against the tire or wind noise or like that so it's sealed up very tightly and lexus for example is a manufacturer that concentrates on that we want complete isolation we want you to feel like you're in a serene cocoon as you travel down the highway and they're less concerned about handling that's always been their you know their uh their thing starting with the LS 400 although they do have sporty cars as well but bmw has always been the opposite but bmw is being pushed more towards the luxury side simply because Everybody's trying to reduce wind noise, road noise, vibration, stuff like that. Well, with the M5 and the platform that it's built on, BMW has managed to seal that sucker up so well that sometimes you can barely hear the engine. And hearing the engine roar is part of the experience of driving a high-performance car. Like people, you know, love to drive on, on top gears. They'll do this all the time. Anytime you drive the Ferrari through a tunnel, you roll down the window and you just wail that engine and you just hear it <laughs> echoing off the walls. That's part of the experience of driving a car. Well, the M5 is so well sealed up that even when you're just like flooring it, it sounds kind of distant, like there's too much isolation. You can't get that engine sound. So what BMW has done is they they play engine noises over the car stereo in response to what you're doing with the throttle. 
they don't, and it's not a microphone in the engine compartment playing, you know, relaying the sound, which would be bad enough. So you're it's saying it, this pre- is, it's not your engine that you're hearing. It's, it's some, uh, it's a pre-recorded engine. Uh-huh. They have a series of pre-recorded engine samples that they play <laughs> in through the car no stereo in, in response to you using your pedal. And I don't know how any self-respecting car enthusiast can a wouldn't know this by now because it's been in in all the the trade press or the uh, car magazines for months and months and months. And b how do you how do you square that with the idea of the ultimate driving machine and performance cars? To know that what you're hearing are pre-recorded samples of an engine that they're mixing together dynamically based on throttle position and all these other types of things. I just don't know why anybody who's having kids would want would even consider that vehicle. It does. It just what what mindset. Well, it has enough room for. Uh, so what? Lots of cars have enough room, and and it's it's a fun car to drive. The performance is, is great, and I, who and cares? I thought of who it, cares though. Well, you know, if you're a car guy, you care. Yeah, and I, I thought of it because I saw this this YouTube video of someone showing like, let's compare the engine note of the old uh, M3 with the new M5, and they were recording it outside the cars behind them where the exhaust is, and it just made me think again, like when you're in that car, you're going to be hearing an MP3 or something of some engine they recorded in Stuttgart, and they're mixed. You know, that's. So, Marco, I'm sorry to break this news to you if you didn't know. And if you didn't know, I don't know how you can continue to put that car as your your pinnacle car that you're probably not going to buy anyway because it's very expensive and, and too impractical. But really, he'll get it just a, he'll get it just to prove a point. Pre-recorded engine sounds. It's, I mean, that's just it's crazy. I was trying to think of a good analogy. I spent a long time trying to think of a good analogy and I could not come up with one. I, for some reason, I kept going back to like it's like adding a laugh tag to Arrested Development. But that's only probably only because Marco did that supposed arrested development reference and his troll drawing to me and draw something but whatever the equivalent is it's like it's like playing pre-recorded engine sounds in a bmw that's my analogy for you and i listen it, be, it needs no analogy before people who are listening to this who are bmw aficionados email me i used to own a bmw uh i test drove i think 20 or 25 cars before i bought it uh i you know ordered it custom ordered it so it was built just for me. Uh, I, I've been in that place. And I totally get, I was not the car enthusiast, John, that you are. And I, I never could have been. But I sure did love that car. And I look back, if I could go back in time and just tell myself, like, this is this is going to cost you a lot of money and a lot of time in the dealership getting little things fixed and everything else and like helping me understand that that it didn't matter and what it was all about was like your kids and family and like having fun and like i wish i could go back in time and and uh derail get that, derail. Get that money back well don't you think like that's an appropriate diversion for that time in your life it was you know what yes it was it was for sure. But the amount of stress that the car caused me of like not wanting to get it scratched and oh, always well, wanting, yes. getting it washed and getting the tires for it and, and the money that it costs to like replace the brakes and the tire for, for the cost of one tire on that car, I, I, I could get my current vehicles, all four tires and they'll last twice as long too. And I just, yeah. you know what? But I did, I had fun. I have driving. I was spending a lot of, and this is the other thing. This is how I justified it to myself at the time, John. I was in that car a lot. I had a long commute. So I wanted to create a wonderful little cocoon for myself because there were no podcasts uh, for, me, for me to just in, enjoy in, in, in that. 
But uh, now, if I can like load all my kids and my whole family and all the crap that comes along with them and get somewhere comfortably and safely and not spend too much money on gas, like that's all it's really about. All of these other little details that that people you know think about in life, like and that just seems to fall away when you're there and your kids are smiling. It doesn't. Nothing else seems to matter. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, for, on the M5, by the way, I wanted to clarify in case someone was thinking of sending me a free M5. And now <laughs> yeah, they're, they're you, will, you will accept one, right? Yeah, the M5 is an awesome car. <laughs> the problem with it, it's not this doesn't make the M5 a bad car. It's just a bad decision. Like this, what's say, what's the solution to this problem? My solution would be to not play pre-recorded engine sounds in the car. Can you that's disable it. here? OK, that's so only- for, here's something I remember from from my BMW days. Uh, the you could customize a lot of the behavior, for example, uh, when you put the car into park, what should happen? You know, should should the doors unlock? Should just the driver's side door unlock? Like you can completely customize all of that. Maybe this is, oh, you know, if you're driving away, uh, if you reach five miles an hour, then the door should automatically lock. No, I want it to happen at 10 miles an hour. They can program that for you. Maybe this is something that you can simply that- say, turn that off. I think there's a prominent switch to turn it off. I just think the whole idea, like the, the fact that they even suggested doing that and that they followed through with it just strikes me as wrongheaded and like a, it's like the, the car manufacturer equivalent of a code smell. You're like, well, something's, something's like, how does that even come out? I think there's actually just a big switch that says like, turn off the whatever active blah, blah, blah. You know, I guarantee yeah. there'll be a way to turn off. There always is. I'm just saying like, turn it off. this is a symptom of something. And, and anytime you see someone in an M5, you know the car nerds are going to be like, oh, how those pre-recorded engines sounds like. Even if you turned it off, like it's a it's a mark of shame. It's like a scarlet letter that you bought. A, can you imagine? Like, <laughs> like are you going to buy Ferrari and say, well, yeah, this Ferrari, listen to this engine. Well, actually, it's pre-recorded. Engine, so. You can't not hear the engine. Oh, in a Ferrari. You're practically strapped to the engine. You know, like, yeah. It's and that's like where BMW has to decide what it is. I can't even believe this happened. Like the first time I read it, I thought they were joking. Surely they won't do this. And then sure enough, the cars are shipping and it actually does this. This is a terrible mistake. On um, on the bangle level, is that am I pronouncing his name correctly? Car people in the chat room, the the BMW stylist who took over styling their cars and made a series of incredibly hideous cars that everybody hated and everyone complained about it. This is, I think, a mistake on that level, where you just don't do this. It's just not it's not appropriate. So, feel free to send me that M5. It is a fantastic car. I actually like how it looks too. But pre-recorded engines, sounds it's no it's no good. So that was it. That was my Marco. That's it. Uncomfortable conversation with Marco. And I hope this doesn't mean that he won't give me a ride in his M5. Oh, when of course he, he will. It, when he drives it across country to WWDC. That'd be the way to go. Safe cars. That was the one thing I, I liked about them. They're very safe. German, yep. Good car to have for that reason. It's true. Better be safe for what you pay. Holy exactly. If, if you have the means, I highly recommend it. Yeah. To quote that movie from the eighties. <laughs> what movie was that? Can you get name that one? I can't uh, name it. Off it it is. Uh, I, I can't believe. Uh, I can't believe that you don't. No, I, I have many things in my head from the eighties, but not always uh, associated metadata. This is this is a definitive movie for our generation of people. Ferris Bueller. Yes, Ferris Bueller. Are you reading the chat room or something? Uh, No, my friend beat beat the chat room to it with Uh, I am. It's it's in the scene where they are, speaking of Ferraris, they're taking the uh, Cameron's Ferrari out. And uh, 
this is after he's, you know, he's driving and he's talking about how wonderful the car is and if you have the means. Well, I highly recommend it. It's true. So that's true of BMW as well. But the key is if I have the means. And part of your, I think part of your paranoia about parking far away and getting scratched is because you weren't a billionaire. If you were a billionaire, I think your, your concern about scratches on your BMW would be greatly diminished. I, I, I certainly agree with you. And that was it, the thing is that I, I, di- I, knew, I knew that anything that would happen with that car from just from having a, you know, before that, from having a Volkswagen that would, which we got, like my wife was driving it and somebody, I don't even want to say rear ended because that implies any kind of speed at all. They were in a parking lot and I think they were going like at about a mile an hour and just gently bumped the back of, of the car, almost didn't notice it, but then looked at it and oh, that, that was, you know, that was $1,200 worth of damage for, you know something minor like that. Forget what happens in a a BMW. I mean, forget it. Just simply forget it. You have to have, you have to have so much spare cash just to, just to keep one of those things going. And that's the thing is you look at the, and this is, I was fooled into this because I look at, you look at the cost of the car and you say, well, it's not that much more than I'll I'll pick, you know, an, an Acura. It's not, it really isn't the three series that I had. It's not a whole that much, that much more. And you look at it and you say, well, that, that, for what we're getting, the comfort, the safety, the, 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 the wonderful experience of driving, it's not that much more. But it, it's much more expensive all along the way. And my whole focus over the years has been trying to simplify my life and, and eliminate things and get one thing that's going to last a very, very long time with the least amount of maintenance, the least amount of care, the least amount of concern. And uh, you know what? Last week, our, uh, our, our, our van... Some something happened is someone brushed against, you know, like they were backing out and you could see where they brushed against like the bumper and left a little bit of their paint there, left a little bit of paint. It didn't like scratch it, but it was just like this rubbing of the paint. My wife comes out, oh, look, something happened in the car. Uh, it's, all right, I'll, I'll see if I can get out. And, you know, I took, we have this, uh, what is it, new finish or whatever that thing is, a little orange. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's like a, a little version. I have, you know, put that on a little uh, cloth, wipe it. It's gone. It's good as new. Oh, is there a scratch? Yeah, maybe. I'm not, not going to stress out about it. I got b- better things to do, you know? And and that's the kind of, th- like, that had been the BM. Oh, my God. How could you let that happen? Well, I was in the store with, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? All right, I'll take it to the thing. We'll get an estimate, you know, because you want to keep the car perfect. You can't drive your BMW around with a scratch on it. You can't do that with a minivan. It's got a scratch. Yeah, all our cars are beat to hell. Well, you also you also live up in the Northeast, which is that's normal. Yeah, and I don't want to impugn the person who has caused many of these things, so I will not name this person. But it is not me. <laughs> and nobody else, and you and your kids are not of driving. I said age, too much right? already. Okay. <laughs> she doesn't listen to this show. Yes, but but yeah, that that's the thing. Like you know, I'm I'm very into cars, and I read all these car magazines, and have for my whole life. But I'm not a millionaire like Marco. So what I actually drive is a 2002 Honda Civic. With many, many scratches and dents on the bumpers, all of which I never even considered repairing. <laughs> That's because, right. Like, why, you know, like those plastic bumpers, one piece of plastic, <laughs> and it's like, even on a Honda Civic, it's like 500 bucks for the piece of plastic oh, yeah. plus labor to install it, versus having a scratch in your bumper. I'm going with a scratch in my bumper every time. And the end result of that after a decade of driving is tremendously scratched bumpers. Yeah, we've got my car, my car, my, uh, my wonderful pilot, uh, when in one of in our first weeks here in Austin, uh, we, we were driving somewhere and somebody uh, was making a turn. They improperly executed. We were driving straight. They didn't turn correctly. They went and they, they were trying to get around a bus and 
kind of brushed against the side of our car. It has, you know, there's there's some little indentation, dent, crumple mark thing on the side of the car. And so what? What are you going to do about it? Car yeah, door gonna, door gonna, opens you're gonna fine. Get that, you're going to get the door panel fixed. You know how much that costs? Yeah, it's like fifteen hundred bucks. And what are you getting out of it? A nicer looking door. Like functional thing is one thing. Pop a tire, you got to get it fixed. Oh, you yeah. can't use the car anymore. If the engine has a problem that's going to cause it to die. You have to fix it, even if it costs a lot, because you want the engine to keep running. But cosmetic damage is repairing cosmetic damage is the realm of people with more disposable income than I have. And you know what else? If you lease, if you lease the car, a lot of people who listen to this show lease. If yeah, they that's le- tough. They charge you for that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, you've got to get that fixed. You yeah. better hope that you, you, and you have to carry full, full coverage, which you should probably do anyway, but you, you've got to, and then you've got to go and you got to be inconvenienced because you got to go and drive out to the auto repair, the, the body repair shop. And those body shops are not located in nice places near the shopping mall. So you can, you know, go to Barnes and Noble while you, you know, get some <laughs> coffee. It's it's in like the whatever the worst part of town. Even if you think that you don't have a bad part of town where you live, that's where you'll have to go to the body shop, and you'll that's go. Not th- impugn the reputation of body shop owners. Then. No, the owners They're are fine. Perfectly nice people. They just they just have to uh, they just have to locate their things way out in the middle of uh, of of nowhere behind the the big iron gates. So you yeah. go there, and then you sit there, and you wait, and the guy comes out, and then he has to write up the estimate, and the estimate takes forever, and it comes out as twice as high, and you say, well, I'm paying this out of pocket. Oh, well, let me do another estimate for you then. And they go, well, do you want, do you want real parts, or do you want aftermarket parts? So what are aftermarket parts? Well, they're basically piece of crap parts that are just like the originals, but we spray paint them here. And uh, they won't perfectly match, but we'll paint other parts of your car to make them match. And uh, you, better, you better not like go through a regular car wash, because... The paint will come off, but no, 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 it, they're fine. And then you have that, and in the back of your mind, you, you know it's not going to be as good, but you go with the aftermarket parts because they're less than half as much as the regular parts. So, of course, you go with them, and they can get them much, much sooner. And then you drop your car off, and maybe your insurance company gets you a loaner car. Maybe they get you a rental car, which is going to suck, and it's not going to have the car seat in it, and it's not going to fit right, and you're not going to be able to do all the things you normally do. And then they're going to take two or three times as long to get the repair actually done on your car than, than you ever thought it would possibly take. And the insurance money isn't going to cover everything because, see, when they took that bumper off, they found underneath it there was more damage and they can try to send it back to the insurance. But if you do that, it's going to take an extra week. So do you just want us to do it now? Yeah, okay, fine, we'll do it now. We'll pay the difference. Then they, they do it. It comes back. It looks pretty good. But now the door creaks and it didn't used to creak. And, uh, you know, the, you have your car back and you've lost, you know, weeks and hours and hours of your time and you've driven around a crappy car or you can just leave the dent. Well, you can't leave a dent on a BMW, can you? I probably could, believe it or not. I wouldn't be able to. and I never was able to. On uh, a Ferrari, maybe not. But I'm willing to be tested. And like I say to certain people in my life, the rule for driving is like the rule for peas and potatoes on a child's plate. <laughs> Which, what they is the rule? Touch. The cars don't touch. <laughs> Right. That's right. And if, if you think about this, <laughs> if you dwell on this for a while, it really is mind boggling that we have thousands and millions of metal machines hurtling through our streets. And pretty much all the time, we, they don't touch. And it's like the unwritten law of driving everywhere except for maybe India or something. Sorry, Indian listeners. They, they, they I think that the term is Native American. No, those guys. The cars don't touch. They don't touch each other. No touching of the cars anywhere. <laughs> At any time, no touching. And when they do touch, it's it's a big deal. It's an accident. Don't, you know, it's like an invisible barrier that we all maintain in our minds. Like, no touching. Cars, no touching. 
And that's the rule I try to live by in Dragon Garth. No touching, because if you don't touch, <laughs> then you don't have to deal with that repair story that you just went through there. Yeah. Uh, but of course, if you're a billionaire, you just throw that car away and you buy a brand new one. Right. Or you have your people take it for you and you yeah. take one of your uh, several other cars that are at your disposal. Exactly. Assuming they've been appropriately detailed. We've morphed this into an after dark, though. I, I guess. Know. Well, it's anyway, right. we, we'll let this go. Yeah. Uh, people can follow John Syracuse on Twitter, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. On Twitter, I'm Dan Benjamin. On Twitter, uh, this has been Hypercritical. Uh, share your thoughts and comments with John. Go to 5x5.tv slash contact. And uh, please rate the show in iTunes. Uh, we, we don't ask uh, that a lot, but uh, it really does help uh, this show. It helps uh, new people find the show, and that means more sponsors, which means we can keep doing the show. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, have a great week. <laughs>